A nationwide survey reveals that the number of general surgeons has dropped 25% in the past 25 years. A continuation of this decline could have profound implications on patient populations that depend on general surgeons. What are the key demographic concerns surrounding a national shortage of general surgeons? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Dana Christian Lynch, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington School of Medicine and Practicing General Surgeon. Dr. Lynch is the lead author of research published in the Archives of Surgery on the National Shortage of General Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Lynch. Thank you for having me. We are discussing the impact of a national shortage of general surgeons. Dr. Lynch, is there a national shortage of general surgeons at this time? We know that there has been approximately a 25% decline in the number of general surgeons per 100,000 Americans, and that has occurred over the past 25 years. So if you look at the numbers, you have fewer general surgeons per 100,000 population than we had 20 years ago. And that is in the background of the baby boomer population reaching its geriatric years when we know there's good evidence in the literature that demand for services of general surgeons goes up. To really say, however, that there aren't enough general surgeons means you have to be able to document that there's not enough general surgical services being provided. And so then you you really have to measure if people don't have access to enough general surgeons. And that's not something we can prove in our paper. Our paper addresses manpower. But common sense would say there is a shortage. And then if you look at other stuff in the literature, you see all kinds of reports about hospitals, urban and rural, having difficulties getting general surgical coverage for emergency surgery and trauma call. You have many papers in the literature, particularly by Zuckerman et al., from uh, upstate New York, citing hospital administrators in rural hospitals, talking about their difficulties recruiting any general surgeons at all to practice in rural communities. Even though, you know, it's really difficult to measure adequate provision of services, if you look at our manpower numbers in combination with reports from around the country, I would say there's pretty good evidence that we are facing a shortage of general surgeons. The hooker in that is, and and we'll probably get into this discussion later, is that, you know, a lot of people who went on to do subspecialty training, whether it's in colorectal surgery, surgical oncology, et cetera, after general surgery service training, whether they continue to practice some general surgery as part of their surgical practice is an unknown. And in some areas, if they can't fill their practice with their subspecialty, they probably do. And so that, in urban areas at least, may fill in some of the shortfall in rural areas where there's much fewer surgical subspecialists and where really general surgeons provide the bulk of surgery services besides orthopedics and gynae. There really is no replacement for those individuals. And based on our previous studies and 
reports from around the country, I would say that you know there's already a market shortfall of general surgeons in those areas. Well, what would be the argument about someone saying, well, okay, someone comes in with a breast problem, they go to a breast surgeon, has a colon problem, they go to a colon surgeon, have a hernia, they go to a hernia surgeon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, what would be the argument against someone coordinating that type of care for surgery? Well, I don't know that there is an argument against it, and it may be what will happen and increasingly in the future and, and what is already happening in uh, some places. In rural areas, however, you're not going to have all those various different subspecialized practitioners. I mean, the population's not going to support it. And so rural general surgeons have traditionally provided a pretty wide variety of general surgical services, abdominal surgery, breast surgery, soft tissue surgery, trauma, and even at times if there were, was not orthopedics, urology, or ob they would provide some of those surgical services as well, depending on their training. The argument in rural places is just not going to happen. And as you know, one of the arguments for made for increased subspecialization is volumes outcomes. If you do one procedure or two procedures a lot, you're going to have better outcomes. And that's a tremendously complex body of literature and fraught with controversy. But the leapfrog group and many people have latched on to it. And so, you know, you can foresee a situation where somebody would be a general surgeon in a rural place and they would say, well, you can take care of trauma and you can do a few hernias, but you can't do any colon resections because our data shows that you know, if you don't do more than 20 per annum and do it in a, a large volume center, et cetera, your outcomes might not be as good. And of course, that's going to make it even more difficult to attract people to practice in rural places. In urban places, the scenario you've set out, you know, may be on the way. Certainly in large hospitals, there's colorectal surgeons, there's general surgeons, there's people who devote their practice to breast only, hernia only. The problem there is that if those individuals choose not to cover general surgical emergency call, it makes it increasingly difficult for the hospital to find coverage for patients who come in in the middle of the night with perforated diverticulitis, appendicitis, periorectal abscesses, stuff like that. And so the sort of dearth of people practicing general surgeons makes it difficult to provide urgent care. One of the solutions that is happening in some urban areas in both academic and non-academic practice is the emergence of the so-called surgical hospitalist, and that's somebody either hired specifically for that purpose or each member of a group taking a turn covering all emergency room and floor consults and putting in lines and dealing with all the surgical emergencies for a defined period of time, whether it's a 12- or 24-hour shift, so that the hospital can provide coverage for those and that the other surgeons can get on with their elective surgical schedule and clinics without being disturbed. If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Dana Christian Lynch, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington School of Medicine and a practicing general surgeon. We are discussing the impact of a national shortage of general surgeons. Dr. Lynch, does the public view a general surgeon as doing, let's say, a colon resection or a hernia operation or a breast surgery 
as not being as good as someone who calls themselves a hernia surgeon, a breast surgeon, etc.? I can't really answer that. I think in an era, though, of increasing specialization, increasing marketing of medical procedures, and an increasingly sophisticated medical consumer, it stands to reason whether it's justified or not that, especially in large urban areas, if somebody advertises themselves as the hernia center of excellence, that that's going to carry some weight rightly or wrongly, and may work to the disadvantage of the practicing general surgeon. Now, I have always thought that there was a distinction between the medical critical care specialist and the surgical critical care specialist. And something that was always strongly emphasized in general surgery as the ability to be able to be a quarterback, and when things start going crazy, and you know what I mean in trauma situations or a patient has a multi-system organ failure secondary to surgical issues, it's usually the general surgeon who steps forward and takes over and at least directs care to the appropriate specialist or handles it themselves. Is that whole concept becoming archaic? I don't know if it's becoming archaic. It is changing somewhat, I believe. And, you know, my scope of practice is narrow. I I work at a VA for a university, so I don't have as much exposure as what's going on in the community. But in more urban areas, in large hospitals, both academic and non-academic, the critical care specialists are more and more prevalent. In our own hospital, for instance, we've gone to having a unit which is covered by a critical care team, which has elements of general surgical critical care staff, anesthesia critical care staff, and medical critical care staff. So it's no longer just the general surgical team taking care of their own patients exclusively. We have input, but we don't do all the day-to-day stuff. And even at Harborview, which is the trauma center, they have gone to a closed unit model as well, albeit with a model that I think has only general surgical critical care staff. So in smaller hospitals and in rural areas, though I think it's still going to be the general surgeon who's going to be the most knowledgeable person in terms of critical care and is still going to be taking care of their patients in the ICU as well as out. In a lot of large hospitals, I think that's changing with the advent of closed units and critical care team, the staff of which may involve some general surgeons, but will certainly involve also medicine critical care and anesthesia critical care practitioners. Well, what do you think about that closed system? To my mind, it's too early to tell here. I'm only just seeing the beginning of it. I think it has some theoretical advantages in that you have an attending, critical care attending, rounding uh, twice a day in the unit and being there omnipresent and driving forward stuff like extubation and you know, getting people out of the unit and moving things along and paying attention to stuff which, you know, under the old model, you know, we would see them at the beginning of our operative day and at the end. That's the pros. And again, you kind of got to wait to see how patients do and what the data shows. I think the common sense con is that if as a surgeon, you're still the person who really knows what has happened to them in terms of the operating room and may have a slightly better sense about what to worry about. So you still need to pay attention even though another team is running their management in there and you need to stay in close communication. Also, I think just by virtue of their education, 
the medicine and anesthesia critical care practitioners aren't, even though they're more sophisticated sometimes in terms of certainly ventilator management and pharmacological management, they're not as focused on volume resuscitation issues as perhaps we are. So, you know, it requires a lot of staying on top of things regardless in communication, whether it will result in better patient outcomes, I don't know. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Dana Christian Lynch. We have been discussing the impact of a national shortage of general surgeons. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.